Revelation chapter 3 and verse 14, we are dealing now with the last of the seven churches that are addressed in this section of the book of Revelation, the church at Laodicea. And we read in verse 14, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Amen. We'll end our reading at the end of the chapter. We know the Lord will bless the reading of his word for his name's sake. Whenever I read the account of the church at Laodicea, I cannot deny that I absolutely marvel at the way they diagnose their own condition and yet how wrong their diagnosis is in comparison to how Christ himself diagnoses them. I, I, I'm rich, I'm in need of nothing. And Christ says, no, no, you're not. Uh, not actually. You're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I look at words like that and I wonder, is that even possible? Can Christians really be that wrong? about their own assessment of their own spiritual condition. And uh, sadly, it is the case, time and time again. Now, though the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 may be considered as vastly different in terms of their locations and situations and particular trials and challenges, there is nevertheless a common theme that runs throughout the epistles to these seven churches. It is the theme, and, and there is a key word to this theme, that key word is overcoming. Without exception, the words, to him that overcometh, those words are applied to each one of these churches. The word overcome is the same word in the Greek, which means to conquer. Verse 21 in Revelation 3 makes it clear that overcoming or conquering 
is a manifestation of Christ-likeness. So we read, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my Father's throne, even as I also overcame and am sat down with my Father in his throne. You see the connection there between our overcoming and Christ overcoming? Our overcoming is an indication of conformity to him. Just as he overcame, he expects us to do the same. And when you look at the various situations that these churches in Revelation encountered, then you realize at once that we are engaged in spiritual warfare and that we are expected to be victorious in that warfare. Many of the challenges that had to be overcome are challenges that we face today. For example... We face the challenge of making sure that we don't lose our first love. The same challenge that the church at Ephesus faced. We face the challenge of staying free from idolatry. We face the challenge of making sure we maintain pure doctrine and don't fall prey to compromising the doctrine of the gospel. I think in our day, the three churches that stand out as most applicable to us would be the church at Ephesus, which lost its first love, the church at Pergamos, which became too tolerant in terms of its doctrine and practice, and the church at Laodicea, which became lukewarm and was engulfed in a sense of its own self-sufficiency. I want to draw your attention today in particular to this church at Laodicea, and I want to pay particular attention to Christ's proximity to this church. Christ is viewed as being near to this church, yet outside of it. He's standing at the door, which indicates, doesn't it, that he's near but he's outside. I wonder how many here this morning can relate to such a thing. Christ is near you. You don't have to go far to find him. You don't have to scale great heights or plunge to deep depths. He's near. The word is nigh thee, Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 8. Even in thy mouth and in thy heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, So Christ is near at hand, and yet he's outside of us. He's knocking on the door, and he seeks to gain entrance to each and every heart. He's near at hand, and yet due to our heart condition, he's outside. Reminds me of what I take to be a rather humorous narrative in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 12. You have the account of Peter being arrested and imprisoned. He's to be executed the same way James had been executed. And so the church calls for a prayer meeting. That prayer meeting goes into the night, and the Lord answers prayer and delivers Peter from jail. He makes his way to the house of Mary, and he knocks on the door to be let in. And a damsel by the name of Rhoda, instead of opening the door to let him in, goes off instead to report to the rest of the praying church that Peter is standing right outside the door. 
They don't believe it. That's the irony of it and the humor of it, really. Here they are knocking on heaven's door while the answer to their prayers is knocking on their door. But unbelief still rules in their hearts. This is the same thing that needs to be overcome when we find ourselves becoming lukewarm in our devotion and the presence of Christ is something that we don't sense or enjoy. The purpose of this communion table is to exhort us to open the door to Christ again so that we might know the reality of his presence and we might overcome spiritual apathy and the loss of our first love, etc. It is here that our desires for Christ can be and should be both strengthened and then satisfied. So I want to focus on this theme this morning, the theme of Christ knocking on the door of our hearts. Christ knocking on the door of our hearts. Again, verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And under this theme, I'd like you to consider with me, first of all, the marvel of this situation, the marvel of Christ knocking at the door. And the marvel of his knocking is first seen in the fact that he has to knock at all. How is this that we find Christ standing at the door, indeed standing outside the door? How is it that something had come between the church at Laodicea and their Savior that served as a barrier to their fellowship with him? Or more to the point, how is it that anything could come between us and our Savior in such a way that we find him outside the door, so to speak, of our hearts? The answer has to be found in our own faults and in our own sins and shortcomings. There's certainly nothing lacking on Christ's part. He hasn't changed. His desire and affection for his people hasn't changed. The same can be said for his love and grace and mercy that can be said of Christ himself, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. The problem then must be found in us. And I have to say here that this is not a unique problem to us, nor is it a unique problem to the church in Laodicea. There's kind of what I would take to be an Old Testament counterpart to this narrative. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we have a picture that indicates this has sadly been a problem throughout the history of redemption. In the symbolism of that song, you find Christ in exactly the same position where you find him in our text in Revelation. I sleep, but my heart waketh, we read in the Song of Solomon, chapter 5 and verse 2. It is the voice of my beloved that knocketh saying, Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my undefiled, for my head is filled with dew and my locks with the drops of the night. And what is the response of the bride to this plea from the bridegroom? 
I have put off my coat, how shall I put it on? I have washed my feet, how shall I defile them? The bride had become too lazy or too comfortable to rise and open the door for her beloved. The bride had become too comfortable in the absence of the bridegroom. And how I fear that this is oftentimes the case with us. We're so comfortable in this world that we lose the very desire for Christ and we fail to see our need for Christ. What was the sin that plagued the church at Laodicea? It was the sin of their own sense of self-sufficiency. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. This church reasons back in Revelation 3 and verse 17. And yet as Christ goes on to diagnose their real condition, he says of them in that same verse that they were wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Oh, beware the person that tells you, yeah, I'm okay. You ask them how they're doing spiritually. I'm okay. Uh, Chances are they're not, especially with an answer like that. Here is the very essence, then, of spiritual blindness and self-deception. They thought they were altogether different than they really were. They had fallen prey to the notion that their affluence and ease were sure indicators that all was well between them and Christ. It's not that they were cold toward Christ. Those that are cold toward Christ are also those, I believe, that will bring their complaints to Christ. I think you might say there's a sense in which Job became cold toward Christ. And the psalmists reflect in various psalms that they become cold toward Christ. Most often this coldness ensues when we fail to understand God's dealings with us. The thing that makes this coldness better than lukewarmness is the fact that in their coldness, they're at least calling on Christ. They're taking their complaints to Christ. Those who are lukewarm in their devotion undoubtedly maintain their profession of faith in Christ, but their attitude becomes that which says, spiritually, they're in need of nothing. All is well, all is okay. But in fact, it isn't. Those that are lukewarm, you see, become prayerless. They see no need for time in the Word, no need for time in prayer. They could be characterized as those in the parable of the sower who find the Word of God to be unfruitful because they're preoccupied with the things of this world or the entertainment of this world. It's not that they have no desire for Christ. They would never admit to such a thing. It's rather that they don't have time for Christ. They have other, more important things to do. It is to me a frightening prospect to contemplate what the children of lukewarm Christians grow up to become. 
What should we expect of our children if we, as parents, constantly convey the message to them that we have no desire for Christ and we sense no need of Christ? Will it surprise you under such circumstances if your children grow up to love the world more than they love Christ? This is a terrible spiritual condition indeed. And the awfulness of that condition is all the more magnified when you read Christ's reaction to it in verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Oh, here is the epitome of tragedy. The people of God becoming this repugnant to the one who loved them and gave himself for them. But I want you to see here the marvel of Christ's grace. Rather than spew them out of his mouth, he first stands at the door and knocks. It's as if he's been turned out of the house, but rather than depart, he seeks readmittance. Oh, what grace our Savior exemplifies! What patience he demonstrates. Oh, that we might catch ourselves in our apathy and blindness and repent of our self-sufficiency and rise at once to open the doors of our hearts to our Savior. This communion table, you know, affords us just such an opportunity. For it is in the remembrance of him that we are enabled to exercise our faith in him and open wide the doors of our hearts that the king of glory might enter in. So we find the marvel in our text of Christ knocking at the door. The marvel is magnified by the awful spiritual condition of the church at Laodicea, a condition, alas, that I fear if we're honest, we'll have to admit that we know The marvel of Christ's knocking is even magnified more when you consider next, secondly, the desire behind Christ knocking. The desire behind Christ knocking. And that desire is found in the second half of verse 20. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Picture Christ during the time of that last Passover when he instituted the Lord's Supper. There you can get an idea of what he desires with his followers. Here is the picture of intimacy. Christ with his disciples around that Passover table, the Apostle John leaning upon Christ's breast. His desire is that we be that close to him. Do you see from our text how fellowship or communion with Christ is a mutual thing? He will sup with us and we will sup with him. It's a mutual form of fellowship. It is not Christ sitting above us, although he is certainly entitled to that position, but the picture is not here one of a king on his throne with his subjects bowing before him, but he condescends to sit with us and sup with us, and his desire is that we draw close to him. 
And the strength of that desire is readily perceived by this table. So we read in Luke 22 and verse 15, upon Christ's institution of the Lord's table, we read there, And he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And we can certainly draw the application from Christ's words that with desire, he desires this very day in this very service to sup with us and we with him around this table this morning. The elements themselves show us with even greater force the strength of Christ's desire. That desire is strong enough to compel him to leave heaven's glory and come into this world and to take to himself human flesh. His desire for us is strong enough to become one of us. His desire is strong enough to compel him to condescend that low. But the strength of his desire is stronger still, strong enough to lead him to give his body to be broken, strong enough to compel him to allow himself to be apprehended and abused and at last nailed to a cross. Contemplate this question this morning. How strongly does Christ desire you? Well, let every lash he received from the whip answered that question for you. Let every blow that was given to him settle that issue in your heart. Let every strike of the hammer on the nails that were driven into his hands and feet forever stamp the truth on your heart that Christ that greatly desires you. And then let the cup reinforce his answer. See the blood that comes forth from his pores as he prays in the garden. Was that bloody sweat an indication of the dread he sensed, knowing as he did what torment awaited him? If it was an in indication of his dread, it was also an indication of the strength of his desire for you. For he doesn't shrink back from the cross he doesn't draw back from the shedding of his blood. Whatever dread he sensed, his desire for you was stronger than the dread. And so he sees the issue of your redemption through. Such is the strength of his desire for you. This has to be one of the most tragic ironies in all of Scripture that we find Christ desiring fellowship with the church of Laodicea, but we find those in that church having such weak desires for Christ. His desire for you and for me is no less strong than his desire for the Laodiceans. And so he stands at the door and knocks. He knocks with nail-pierced hands. He knocks having demonstrated his love with a demonstration that surpasses any and every other manifestation of love. It's tragic that he would even have to knock. It's tragic that he's outside the door. He knocks because of his desire. He knocks because he's paid a very high price in demonstrating that desire. It remains for us to consider thirdly and finally what our response was, must be then to Christ knocking. 
And that response must be based on the counsel that Christ himself gives to the Laodiceans in verse 18. Note what that verse says, Revelation 3:18. Christ now speaking, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Three things that are needed here for Christ knocking on the door. Do you see what they are? Gold tried in the fire, white raiment, and eye salve. Gold tried in the fire. I take that to mean the trial of your faith. 1 Peter 1, 7, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what your heart desires? Oh, let my faith be unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. This becomes, on the surface of it, a rather frightening prospect when viewed this way, the trying of my faith. That means my comfort zone might be invaded. That means that I might not have any room for spiritual apathy. That means I might have to cry to the Lord because in my trials I will at last see my need for him. The benefit to this gold tried in the fire is that you'll come to see just that, your need for him. You'll see your need for Christ You'll call upon him, he'll hear and answer and provide, and in the process, you'll come to discover something that you can't discover when you're lukewarm, and that is that your faith is genuine and real. That's what makes you rich. When you realize your need of Christ and you come to see that he is with you, that he is for you, that he is sufficient for every need, no matter what kind of need you face. The white raiment I take to be very simply the garments of salvation, and in particular, the robe of righteousness that Isaiah refers to. The whiteness of that raiment speaks to us of our justification, and anyone who sees his justification by the grace of Christ alone, based on the merits of Christ alone, will certainly be delivered from any sense of self-sufficiency he may be harboring. And when the eye solve, which I take to be symbolic of spiritual illumination, when this eye solve is applied to a Christian spiritual sight, then he'll see that in and of himself he is indeed wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He'll have nothing to glory in. He'll be delivered from all self-sufficiency and he'll understand what he was and then he'll understand and appreciate what he now is by the grace of God. He's saved by grace and that not of himself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What is it then that bolts the door against Christ and shuts him out? and leaves him knocking for readmittance. 
It's our self-sufficiency. It's our spiritual apathy. It's our lack of spiritual illumination to the glorious truths of the gospel. You could say it's our worldliness, at times our carnal appetites that reduce our religion to theory and mere external compliance. This is certainly not something that Christ desires for you. He desires something much greater for you and with you. He desires to sup with you and you with him. And so he stands at the door and knocks. Don't you think it's high time this morning that we open the door? Open the door of our hearts to him and implore him to come and do just that? The Lord's table gives us the opportunity for that very thing. As we contemplate his broken body and his shed blood, as we, to borrow from our larger catechism, as we affectionately meditate on his death and sufferings, we will be enabled to open the door or to stir up ourselves to a vigorous exercising of our graces. So now is the time to plead with Christ to come in and sup with you. And in the course of communing with Christ, you should seek him for the enabling grace you need in order to keep him from being shut out so that he has to knock to re-enter. The benefits to opening the door are great. We enjoy communion with Christ. The alternative is terrible. He spews us out of his mouth. Oh, let's open the door this morning and endeavor to keep the door open in the coming days by his grace and power. Let's pray then before we distribute the elements. Let's all pray. O Lord, as we bow now in thy presence, we thank thee for how gracious our Savior is. Even when we find ourselves to be poor and miserable and blind and wretched, Lord, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. May he help us not to flatter ourselves into thinking we're something that we're not. But then, O Lord, we pray that with the Spirit's help also, we will be enabled to throw open the doors of our hearts today. Oh, Lord, we plead with thee even now to come and sup with us and we with thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.